Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. We're reading from Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has been he has seen a vision of a man. Sorry. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might re- regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he has chosen, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. If you've been around, um, if you've been around Park City for any, any length of time, maybe, maybe not. If, if I don't know how I want to say that. You may or may not know, like we, my family, it started in COVID, uh, but every Saturday we, we eat cinnamon rolls. It's, and it started as a rhythm in COVID because, you know, everything was crazy. So we would like eat cinnamon rolls every Saturday. And we're like, what, I don't know, two or more years in, into it. I could probably count on one hand the number of Saturdays I haven't had a, a cinnamon roll. I, I don't know if that's like something to be proud of or embarrassed about. But um, it's a thing we do. It is a favorite sort of aroma and uh, food item. And they come in all kinds for us. But uh, there, there is a, this is the segue here. There's a, a passage in a, a novel by an author named Marilyn Robinson. And she's written a collection of, uh, it's a quartet of novels sort of around some of the same characters set in the 1950s in a small town in Iowa. The life of a, a rural pastor, a couple of rural pastors and sort of the, uh, relationships in these uh, families, their friendships broken and whole, marriages broken and whole, uh, sort of the imperfections of human understanding, the uh, nature of human love, all these kinds of things. She sort of beautifully and, and uh, uh, descriptively talks about. But in one of these uh, stories, in the second of these books called Home, 
Uh, there's, a, there's a passage that has just, it, I, for obvious reasons, as will become apparent, I, they just linger with me. So she's telling the story of, of one Presbyterian minister uh, who is on his deathbed and he's dying and his grown children have come back home. His daughter's name is Glory. His uh, 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 son's name is Jack. And Jack is a, a bit of a ne'er-do-well son who is, has sort of been away and uh, separated from the family but has come back to help his sister care for their father. So it's a scene in the home that's sort of thick with tension. Right? What does it mean to come back and, and, and ask for or find forgiveness? What does it mean to come back to relationships that are strained and broken? What does it mean as the sister to sort of be an agent of reconciliation in all of this? So it's a story full of all of these uh, tensions and brokennesses, many of which we can probably relate to. But there's a moment where the sister is sort of describing this benediction, all sorts of things, racism, all sorts of things that play in the family. And uh, Jack has come back, and uh, there's this moment where Gloria is sort of trying to decide how to handle, you know, what, 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 what do you do in this moment? And this is what she, uh, the Marilyn Robinson writes, how to announce the return of comfort and well-being, except by cooking something fragrant. That's what mom always did, her mother always did. After every calamity of any significance, she would fill the atmosphere of the house with the smell of cinnamon or brownies, or chicken and dumplings, but we want to focus on the cinnamon rolls. Right, she would fill the house with the smell of cinnamon rolls, and it would mean this house has a soul that loves us all, no matter what. It would mean peace if they had fought, and amnesty if they had been in trouble. It had meant you can come down to dinner now, and no one will say a thing to bother you unless you, you've forgotten to wash your hands. And her father would offer the grace, inevitable with minor variations, thanking the Lord for all the wonderful faces he saw around the table. It doesn't say it in what Emily read for us this morning. Just a passing reference to a guy named Judas at a random house on the way called Straight. But in that house, Saul, the murderous persecutor, has, is there. God is sending Ananias to meet Saul, to welcome him to the family. I, I gotta believe Judas was cooking cinnamon rolls. Right? It doesn't say it in the passage, but nothing you say will convince me this was not a home full of the aroma of cinnamon rolls. A place where, uh, as she so beautifully put it, uh, a, a place where if there had been fighting, now there would be uh, peace. If someone was in trouble, in need of forgiveness and amnesty, this is where they would find it. We're told in verse 11 that Emily read for us, the Lord said to him, to Ananias, rise, go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. That's you, buddy. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. I mean, I mean, there must have been an aroma, a smell of cinnamon rolls, right? A house that has a soul that loves us all no matter what, that meant peace if they had been fighting or amnesty if there had been trouble. It's a remarkable scene, this interaction. And, uh, you know, 
It's the story of the conversion of one really contentious and violent soul, religious and righteous, self-righteous even, right? The story of the conversion of one soul, but also not, not just that conversion, but the reception of that soul around the, the table. So I want to ask us to think about this scene this morning. And the way I'm going to do it is I, I want us to use, or I'm going to uh, invite you to use with me a framework we've been using at Summer Scriptures. So we've been reading uh, through Acts in the park uh, over the summer, and just sort of a structure we use that you could probably take with you in your own reading of Scripture. It it's a, can be a helpful sort of way into the passage. But I, we're just going to consider three questions, uh, this story through the lens of three questions. And the first one is this, what does this story, this moment in the story of Acts, tell us about God, about Jesus, or about his plan? All right, what, what does what Emily read for us this moment in Acts, this will be our last Sunday in Acts, then we'll take a break for a while, but uh, what does this moment tell us about God, Jesus, or his plan? I want to suggest to you that uh, before it tells us anything really about conversion, and it does, this dramatic moment of life change, right? I mean, he was headed one direction, he's turned around, and now he's heading another one, uh, and it's easy to sort of like, get caught up in that story, but I think uh, before it sort of asks us to consider that particular piece of the story, it, it really grounds our understanding of conversion at all in the, in the character of God. It tells us something about God that this story happens at all, right? It says something about the God this story is about, it says something about him that this moment in the life of Saul, whose name will be changed to Paul and who will go on, who will go from murdering Christians to uh, writing a, a majority of the letters of the New Testament, it says something about the, the God that would interact with this uh, heart and soul uh, as much as it does about the heart and soul, right? And, and I, think, I think sometimes that's not typically how we think about religion, right? What it tells us is that God is the one in pursuit, he is the one pursuing people. We tend to think, you know, the way we sort of approach religion, religious practice, ours and others, is often that it's our pursuit of God or of stillness or of detachment or of nirvana or of enoughness or of righteousness. And, and we work really hard to sort of do what we can to kind of climb that ladder or achieve sort of that status or that place, that state. But in this story, we're confronted with a different truth. It tells us something about the character of God, that, that, that all of this is first and foremost about his pursuit of us. He is a God who pers pursues. A story about God, it, his character and his action in the world, which is by his grace directed towards people. He pursues people. And maybe you're thinking, this feels like a no-brainer. Yes, yes, we know. For God so loved the world that he gave. We know. We know the story. John 3, 16. Let's see it you know, all football season. I, I don't know. Maybe you see other times of the year. But, uh, right, we, we know the story. But I think it's worth pausing here as we sit with uh, the story of Saul. It's a story about a God who pursues people, even people who oppose him. Right, even people who oppose him. Again, we hear this dramatic story, and we... It's compelling, and we can it rightfully get caught up in the sort of sudden and dramatic nature of this story, but I want us to think about the context in which it happens. Emily read for us in verse 1 that Saul was still, still actively, currently still breathing threats and murder 
against the disciples of Jesus. And then a verse or two later, in that sort of fervor and fomenting like anger, it tells us he's on his way. As he went on his way, in this state, he approached Damascus. And in that moment, actively pursuing, opposing, fighting, resisting the purposes and plans of God and the world, in that moment of active resistance, a sudden light from heaven shone around him. Makes me think of what Paul would later write in Romans, and it makes sense. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He pursues people, even when we uh, and others are opposed to him. His character, his, a characteristic of his work in the world is that he is a pursuer of people. The action, the, the subject of the action in the faith, the Christian faith, is God. He is the one working, moving, pursuing It's his work first, even and often in spite of the fact that we are opposed. But he doesn't just pursue people who are opposed to him in this story, this scene with Saul. He also pursues believers, disciples, people who are already trusting him. Maybe that's you this morning. You're living a life of faith and trust in Jesus. There's a scene here in this moment, wrapped up in the scene, we, we see that God's character is still to come after and pursue the people who already trust and belief. We're told in verse 10 that he says to Ananias in a vision, again, at least as Luke gives us the story, all the initiative in this moment is God's. He interrupts the routine, just like Saul was interrupted in his routine of persecution. Ananias, in the rhythm of whatever he was about that day, God shows up and speaks to him. It's his initiative. And the back and forth between these two guys is interesting to me. By these two guys, I mean God, his creator, and Ananias. I didn't mean to speak cavalierly of this interaction. Uh, But uh, the interaction, I think, is really human, right? Uh, On the one hand, Ananias is really available, right? Jesus, uh, in his vision, Ananias, he says, here I am, right? You're like, ah, this is laudable, right? Would that we all had this kind of posture. But, but then, then God tells him what he wants him to do, right? So the initiative is God's. He's the first one to begin the conversation. Ananias is like, all right, I'm here, I'm in, uh, I'm ava- here, I'm here. Speak to me, Lord, right? But then, then the Lord says, I need you to, your assignment is actually to go and, and, and welcome Saul. The, you know, you, Saul, I need you to go and w- welcome him. be a part of restoring, giving him his place around this table and and this mission of my activity in the world. Naturally, Ananias is like, oh, you know, he's like, let's pump the brakes. You know, I'm I'm here, I was here, I'm in, but just to make sure I'm hearing you correctly, right? There's There's some reluctance here. We are talking about this Saul whose reputation is notorious and infamous. We are aware not only, like he's not just rogue, he has the authority of the religious state in this moment to sort of persecute people like me and you want me to go and, and welcome him, pray for him. So there's availability, but then there's a bit of like hesitancy and reluctance. Who doesn't and can't relate to that? But then God comes back. I love that this is just a gracious back and forth. God is patiently pursuing uh, the obedience of Ananias. He says, yes, I know all of these things to be true. But I have a plan for Saul, bigger than Saul. We'll consider that in a moment. And so we're told in verse 14, so Ananias departed. He went. He, he went. 
This beautiful interaction, again, as much as, and we should focus on the availability of Ananias, the obedience, eventual obedience of Ananias, I want you to consider with me that the the thread through the story is God's initiative in speaking to him at all in the first place, that God is the one who pursues him. And then finally, like what this sort of conclusion in the conversation in verse 15, it's not just that God pursues people opposed to him like Saul, pursues believers like Ananias. The scope is thrown wide open in his conversation with Ananias. Ananias, he pursues, the word here is Gentiles. Whole groups of people far from uh, the faith where this would have started, the Jewish people. The Lord said to Ananias, go, for, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. Right? That God is not just pursuing Saul, uh, someone opposed to him, not just pursuing Ananias, someone already trusting in him, but, but the, the scope and scale of his pursuit of people, he says here, is larger than anyone in this story has anticipated. Right, continues to sort of push the boundaries of what they're comfortable with. God is gracious and patient and persistent. This is a story I suggest to you. What does it tell us about God, Jesus, or his plan? That, that God is a pursuer of people. He pursues Saul and Ananias, the Gentiles. But even if we just zoom out a little bit to the surrounding context stories we've considered the last week or two, he, he pursues an Ethiopian on a deserted road in Gaza headed back who's been a sort of religious seeker searching for something in Jerusalem, has left still searching, and, and he pursues him on a deserted road in Gaza. He pursues a magician, Simon the magician, who is misguided, as we saw a few weeks ago, sort of maybe doesn't quite uh, have the right motivations, but is still caught up in the story of the good news of Jesus. And we're told in that same story, he pursues Samaritans, religiously and ethnically opposed, in conflict with the people of God at this time, and yet God is pursuing them. And now Saul murderous persecutor of the church. What does a story like this tell us about the God who is at its center, about his plan? I think it tells us that conversion is his work. It's his work. Whatever dramatic story unfolds on the pages of these life stories, it is first and fundamentally a work of God. He is a pursuer of people, and he's pursuing you and me. The, se- the second question, so if the first one is, what does this story, this passage, tell us about God and his plan? The, the second question we've been considering over the summer is, what does it tell us about people? And if you'll indulge me, I just want to flip the point from the previous question. It tells us that people are God's pursuit, right? That if the activity, if he is the subject, we're confronted with the truth, it's his character to pursue, but who he pursues is people, and this is worth noting, people, the like the person sitting next to you that you may or may not like. Like you, when you look in the mirror, the person looking back that you may or may not like. God is a pursuer of people. People are the object of his grace and affection and pursuit. He's pursuing people. What does this tell us about people? I think it tells us a lot that in God's action in the world, in the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we discover that God's action in his grace is directed toward us, toward you and me. 
but I think, I think it does prompt a, a little further reflection on uh, conversion. And I've chatted with a couple of you guys, was in some conversations recently where just, just sharing a bit of like how you came to faith. And maybe as you think about wherever you are in relationship to that story, I think sometimes we read a story like this and, and, and it can strike us a few different ways. For some, maybe your story is close to Saul's. Maybe you didn't see a vision on a road, but, but your conversion was dramatic. It was full of intensity and passion and, and suddenness. But for others, man, maybe your experience has been a little different. How do we sit with a story like Saul's in Acts 9? Well, I think it does leave room and space for us to maybe, what's it tell us about people that are our stories of apprehending or understanding or experiencing God's action in the world are varied. They're not always the same. That yours and my experience of the reception of God's action, his move towards us in Jesus is varied. We want a, you know, we want a passage like this or a story like this to be, I think, formulaic right? You're like, this is how, this is sort of how it works. We hear this story, like A plus B equals C for the mathematicians in the room. You're like, yes, would that faith were always so clean, right? Um, uh, yeah, uh, there are probably other sort of analogies, but we'll leave it at math. But the, 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 we just wish that things would be so logically sort of clear. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think we can hear this story in that way, that what it tells us about people, particularly in its context, is that our experience of God's grace is our conversion, our acceptance of that activity and work and the way it changes us is varied. Let's just back up for a moment. Think about the Ethiopian. We talked about him last week. He's in a chariot. He's headed back home to the, at the time, sort of the limits of the known world. He had been searching and found maybe, we don't, you know, the, 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 the conversation is open, not quite found what he was looking for. So he's reading Isaiah and he's on his way back searching. He'd been on a, on a journey already that had been long to Jerusalem. He was, you know, sort of working his way through scripture. The process of conversion for him is slow, feels slower and it's mediated, right? That there are other sort of, uh, it's not like Jesus showed up to him on the road. It's mediated through reading Isaiah, through a conversation with, with Philip. It's, it's, there are sort of distances between the, the good news he will come to know and experience and the way he receives it. And then he's baptized and that's immediate and he experiences joyful sort of reception into the community of God's people. Saul's experience is different. Right, so the Ethiopian is kind of this mediated experience with sort of maybe perhaps a process. Saul is, is actively engaged in opposing God, and in the moment, there's a, there's a sort of sudden and violent, it feels, uh, the word here, I think uh, uh, the late Tim Keller, a theologian, pastor, and writer, describes sort of elements of Saul's conversion as being collision, darkness, and, and embrace. Collision, darkness, and embrace. Saul's experience is unmediated. He's on the road and sees a light from heaven, right? Would that that were all of our experiences, just undeniably like intrusive and invasive experience of God's grandness. I, uh, I took my children to a Royals game this weekend. It was my, my kids, it's a birthday weekend in our home. Uh, and uh, if you don't know which kids are mine, just tell all the children happy birthday. They'll probably appreciate the anonymity and then they can still, still be loved. But um, uh, so we, it was their 11 and it was their first major league baseball game, right? Uh, and so we went Friday night and it was perfect. It was beautiful. 
We didn't smell pumpkin spice lattes, but the air was crisp. It was nice, right? You get the hints of the beginning of fall. Did anybody see the score from Friday night? It was 13 to 2. Yeah. It was so fun. Like, home runs, lots of just activity. I think in the second inning, it was maybe the first or the second, the second and third batter. It must have been the first inning because it was a back-to-back home runs. I looked at my kids, and and one of them is asking, like, is it always like this? I was like, yes, every baseball game, (laughs) just like this. We read a story like Saws, like, oh, you know, every conversion, just like this, just this dramatic. And I'm like, no, heard in its context, no, no, the... Ethiopian eunuch was searching and reading and going to Isaiah and didn't understand what he was reading and needed the help of of a friend to come along and say, let me help you in this passage of scripture. Saul's, yes, was sudden, but the conversion experience is varied. Our experience of God's grace and our reception of it may change, but Kellerig and his helpful says perhaps all of these are elements of that experience, the kind of collision. For Saul, it was sudden. For you, maybe it was sudden. God's just intrusion in your life. For the Ethiopian, it was perhaps gradual. But, but then darkness, right? For the Ethiopian, he's like, I don't know what I'm reading. I need help understanding. There is some sense in which I don't understand what's happening here. For Saul, it was literal blindness. He was in darkness, forced into stillness to process his experience of God's engagement in his life. And then embrace their embrace of God's grace, but also the community's embrace of them. Maybe these are elements of your experience, but not in a way that can just sort of be copied and transcripted, and this is how it works. I imagine we all have various experiences of faith, maybe even conversion. What does this passage tell us about people? Our experiences of how we receive God's uh, action in our lives may, may be varied, but it tells us one other thing before we sort of move to the end. I think it tells us that uh, not, not only are people the object of God's activity and grace, people are also uh, at times sort of carriers of that grace uh, in the world. Carriers, vehicles through which God will move and act like Philip to the Ethiopian, like Ananias to Saul. They're not just the object of God's good news, but oftentimes carriers, oftentimes agents through which that good news will find expression, and maybe that's you as well this morning. There's one other question we sit with before we close with a a hymn, and and it's the question, in light of what this story tells us about God and and what it tells us about people, which in this case that God uh, is a pursuer of people, that people are the object of his grace, and our response to that grace may vary, may not always be the same, but it will work life. Well, well, what then, the final question is, well, what, what then, in light of these things, is it asking me to believe or do? What is it inviting me into? And I want to take you back um, uh, to where we started in Acts. We began this series in Acts with sort of an opening premise. Then in a book about so many incredible things and people doing really incredible things, this book is first and foremost a story about God. More than it is about sort of heroes of faith, it's about God, a story about his activity in the world. Even in the the stories of people, remarkable things they've done, like Peter, like Stephen, like Philip, like Ananias, like Saul will do. Um, Acts is at, at its heart a story about God, about what he does, has done, for people.
It was, it was true then, it's true now. It's the story of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection uh, animating the lives of his followers. It's Peter standing up again and again and repeating the same story. You guys are wondering what's going on, what's different about life, my life, this community. It's Jesus. It's God's action in the world. His spirit filling us with that good news, drawing us and you into uh, his action in the world, catching all kinds of people up in his work and along the way changing them. It's Labor Day weekend. You guys are here. We're worshiping together. You all have different stories, as many variations of conversion as there are variations of people in this room, different stories, but all to some degree you're here in some relation, some kind of distance to the work of God in the world, somehow caught up in the story of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. I think I've shared this before, but another little book that I go back to periodically is a little book called Christianity Rediscovered. And it's a, a story, a memoir, I don't know what the right word is, of a Catholic priest who was a missionary. His name is Vincent Donovan. He was a missionary to the Maasai tribe uh, in Tanzania, Africa. And it, it, he writes, recounts some of his experiences in, in that culture uh, relating to people different from himself. And in one of the conversations, he describes a conversation with a young African man about uh, the nature of belief, right, conversion. What's it mean to sort of respond to God's work? And he said, the young man said to him, you know, he's like, you guys approach it like hunting like a white man from a distance with a gun, just eyes and fingers. I'm not a hunter. If there's more to it than that, don't hold that against me. That's what he said, not me, right? Right, but, but you, there's distance. He said, but, but real faith, right? So he's talking to this young man. Real faith, he says, it's more like a lion. Every facet of his being is sort of caught up in the, in the, in the endeavor, right? All senses are engaged. All of him is caught up in enveloping sort of uh, his prey, if you will. He says, faith is more like that. It's the way a man believes, the way a woman believes, the way conversion works. We see it in Saul, like in response to God, at some point all of him engaged in responding. It's interesting to think about that and its description, how it might correlate or parallel with your own experience of faith, what it means to receive God's activity. But he goes on to describe one more interaction that I think is, is helpful. Talking again uh, with this young man about the nature of God's work in their place. And the young man says to him, look, Padre, we did not search you out. We didn't even want you to, to come to us. We didn't want you to come to us. You searched us out. You followed us away from your house into the bush, into the plains where our cattle are, into the hills where we take our cattle for water, into our villages, into our homes. You told us of the high God and how we must search for him, even leave our land and our people to find him. But we haven't done this. We have not left our land. We have not searched for him. He has searched for us. He, he has searched us out and found us. All the time, we think we are the lion. In the end, he said, the lion is God. Well, what is this passage asking you and me to believe? 
I think it's asking you and me to stop and smell the cinnamon rolls. To just pause for a moment. Whether you're opposed to God and far from him, already a believer, seems so distant that, you know, it's not even on the radar. Wherever you are in relation to that, God is pursuing you. The hope that can be found that God is at work in the world, in in his pursuit of you and of others. It's his world and his work. He is at work regardless of the persecution or darkness you may experience or, or be sort of living under. God is at work in the world. Stop and smell the cinnamon rolls or the chicken and dumplings, but I suggest the cinnamon rolls. That because of Jesus Christ, whether you have fought with him or are in need of amnesty and forgiveness, whether you are at peace or troubled, you have a father who says grace over you and he calls you to the table and in that moment you hear a word of gratitude, a prayer of grace over you, thanking the Lord for all the wonderful faces he sees around the table even and perhaps especially yours. So what what are you being asked to do? I'll leave you with this thought. I think the first is to see yourself as pursued by God and in that moment be invited into conversion, into gripping faith the way that young man described the lion's pursuit, to recognize, oh, God is the one who is after you and, and, and in this sort of moment to receive the rest and joy and grace and peace that we've sung about this morning. But I think also, what is it asking you to do? To see others as pursued by God. For you to see others, friends, neighbors, community members, people close, people far, to see them as pursued by God and so be invited into witness, a carrier of loving witness to the grace and mercy we have in Jesus. And then finally, to see God as pursuing his church, his work, in the world that invites you into hope that even in persecution or darkness or heaviness you know that at at, at the heart of the gospel is the promise that the God who raises Jesus Christ from the dead will resurrect life in a world despite its brokenness this I think is what you and I are invited into will you stand with me thank you for listening to the Park City Church podcast to learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at Park City KC.